We reject the ideology of globalism, and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Not only will this tax plan pay for itself, but it will pay down debt. There are moral and legal obligation questions that I think we'll have to wrestle with as a society. When we as people go wobbly on the truth, we go wobbly on America. All you have to do is look at the numbers, look at what we've done. And this is only the beginning. Yes, indeed. Welcome. Good morning. You're listening to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. My name is Jason Taylor, host of Evidence of Design, and I'm joined in WXIR's studios by my good friends and co-hosts, Matt Treadwell. Sup. And Mary Lawrence. Hello. It is the 21st of November 2020. I can't tell if I have my mask on upside down. Does that ever happen to you? You like no, can't tell top from bottom. No, I usually I have like wire things on one side, yeah. so it keeps good. it on top. Hmm. So then I know. Feels kind of odd, but we'll go with it. Yeah, it might not matter too. It might just be, you know, you might have maybe one yours is reversible. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. a windbreaker. It kind of <laughs> looks like it would be. Actually, yeah. it kind of it looks like you have it on right. Huh. Oh, there's some tape That's on good. my chair. Maybe my face is upside down. I don't know. Anyways, <laughs> um, thanks for tuning <laughs> in. That's okay, something I can relate right. to. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for tuning in to your local grassroots community radio station, 100.9 FM WXIR. For those new to evidence of design, we critique income and wealth inequality. Gosh darn it, we think there's way too much economic inequality in our society. Indeed, our economic inequality today mirrors the historic highs in the United States since right before the Great Depression in the 1920s. The top 10% of wealthiest people in the U.S. control 70% of all of the wealth. So the top 10% control 70% of all that there is to own. And the top 1% controls I'm sorry the top 20% the top 20% of highest income earners control the top 50% of all the income whereas the bottom 20% of all income earners only take in 3% of all the nation's income and there's so many more statistics to share our purchasing power has stayed the same if not declined such that for the vast majority of Americans what we're making in labor is the same worth as it was 40 years ago While the price of goods and services has continued to increase, not just because of inflation, but indeed even outpacing inflation with things like higher education. I'm going to admit, Jason, I personally am making more than I was 40 years ago when I wasn't born yet. That's, you know, Mary, that (laughs) is a great point. So you're you're doing just fine. I'm Uh, doing all right. Yeah. Uh, Except that 
I'm on unemployment currently, so <laughs> so maybe that's wrong. <laughs> and, and you were making $4 a year for several years. <laughs> you know. As someone who did a year of service in AmeriCorps making $4.25 an hour, which is the poverty line, and they purposely mm-hmm. pay you the poverty line so you can experience what it's like if you're in the branch of AmeriCorps I was. And I don't disagree with that at all. I'm not saying I deserve to be paid more in AmeriCorps. It's a year of service. But as someone who made the poverty line, Poverty line's not that much. <laughs> it's no, uh, it's no. pretty modest. Eleven thousand dollars a year for one household. Uh, for you know, if, if you're a household of four, two adults, two kids, it's around twenty-five thousand dollars a year. Could you imagine trying to live twenty-five thousand dollars a year with four people in a house? How you could like you know buy a car, save up for a house, save for college, go on a vacation. <laughs> Heaven forbid. What's you know. that? Right, right. So the, the point of all of this is to say we have severe economic inequality in our society. It is not an accident. It's been engineered that way, we think, by the capitalist ruling class against all of those who have to labor to make their ends meet. And we can do something about it. We have the power as American citizens and as people, not just citizens, but people in this country, to live a more egalitarian life. And we have fought and have been fighting and continue to fight people in this country for better, more egalitarian ways of life ever since this country's founding. And we will continue to do so. And on this show, we try to articulate the steps that we can do to make sure that our society is more egalitarian. That's what we're all about. Thanks for joining us. You can go ahead and give us a call throughout the hour at 585-219-8889. That's 585-219-8889. 8889. What are we talking about today? Three things. The first is we always will start out with the COVID-19 latest numbers. We'll look at it globally, nationally, and locally. Then we'll pivot to share who won the local races in the 2020 general election. I believe absentee ballots have, uh, you know, by New York state law, they could only start to be counted this past week on the 16th of November. Uh, I believe most, if not all of them, are counted now, so many, most of the races have been called. We will share the winners from our local elections. Very important to know because all politics is local. And for our feature today's episode, we're looking at a report that came out this summer by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences laying out reforms that could happen in the United States to reinvent our democracy to meet the challenges that we'll all face together in the 21st century. The report is called Our Purpose, Reinventing American Democracy in the 21st Century. We'll look at the report and 31 recommendations they make to make American democracy work better for everyone. Stay tuned throughout the hour on Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR. Mary, why don't you take us from the top with the COVID-19 facts and figures? And so... Maybe let's just jump in and see where we're at when it comes to COVID. All right. So I wasn't here last week. And Jason, I know you picked up the slack in a pretty fabulous way and talked a lot about COVID-19. Today, we're just going to cover the numbers a little bit uh, so that we can cover the feature more. Uh, So starting as usual with uh, an overview of, of what's going on in the world Total cases since January are currently up to about 58 million cases and about 1,375,000 deaths. Uh, sorry, 1,375,000 
does. Uh, yeah, it was a little... Carry yeah. the zero across yeah. your want. Yeah. Mm. Well, you know, anyway. Um, <laughs> so the United States, as it has for the past several months, is leading the world in the number of cases uh, currently with about 12 million cases since the start of the pandemic. Second is India uh, with about 9 million cases, and Brazil still has uh, about 6 million cases, is still third uh, for the number of most cases. Are those As active cases or total that we've had? No, so those are total cases since the beginning of the pandemic. So that's mm-hmm. since since we started counting them, rather, in January. And those are uh, those are reported cases only. So as we know, there are differences in testing between each country. And so these are tests that have come through positive. Uh, It doesn't count people who probably had COVID or probably had COVID and, you know, called their doctor and their doctor said, no, you don't need to get tested. Like those people aren't counted. This is only reported cases. And And this is the entire uh, count since the beginning of the pandemic. And so the numbers you're sharing, Mary, are number of cases that includes both active cases and cases that have already been counted. People had it months ago and they've either recovered or passed away. Yes. So it's only those that have been sort of counted through testing. Mm-hmm. However, uh, you know, this is not to say that, oh, well, the U.S. leads the world in number of cases because we lead the world in testing. Uh, I, I do. I, there has not been evidence that I've seen that convinces me that the reason why the U.S. looks like it has the most cases in the world is because it is doing so much better in testing than everyone else in the world. And therefore, uh, all other countries are lying about their numbers. Right. The Trump administration would say that's what's happening and that our cases look so bad because we're being honest and good with our testing. The evidence does not support that. And the reason why the cases and the number of cases in the U.S. are so high and look so bad is because, well, usually the answer to things is the simplest. It's because it is really bad. I would also say that the evidence doesn't even suggest that we are being good and honest with our testing. (laughs) That is true, too, Matt. Trump told healthcare (laughs) professionals uh, months ago at this point to stop testing because that makes the numbers go up. Right. Yeah. And Although we, I, I'm sure that that... Not saying that that actually happened. Out, but so, yeah. you know. uh, that said, I, I think that there is much wider spread testing at this point than there was in April. So these numbers are probably a little fluid and, and we want to make that clear. You know, this is from uh, a website called Worldometer. I think they're probably fairly good numbers, but we don't know exactly how many people are being tested. You know, we've been having debates this week a little bit um, about what is meant, for example, by um, like the percentages or the number of cases and and what actually to follow. Uh, Nevertheless, we can see the numbers of reported cases increasing. The United States still has the highest number of reported cases, followed by India and then Brazil. And of these reported cases on Worldometer, the United States still has more cases than the next eight countries after India and Brazil. So these include France, Russia, Spain, UK, Argentina, Italy, Colombia, and Mexico. And just for a point of comparison of population, the U.S. population is about 331 million people. And the population of those eight countries I just listed combined is about 612 million. Almost double. So the U.S. Yes. has more cases than eight countries combined. 
despite having yeah. half the population of well, all Well, it's countries. roughly the same. So those eight <laughs> yeah. countries all together have about 12 million cases, right. and uh, the U.S. also has about yeah, 12 slightly million more, cases. Though. Yeah. Um, so as, as we've said this number, I think, several times as we've been going through COVID-19 numbers, and it's still the U.S. has about 4% of the population and continues as it has for the past few months, to have about one-fifth of all cases worldwide and one-fifth of all deaths, again, that have been reported as due to COVID-19. It's nice to know that we're still exceptional in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, even if it's in murder, which, you know, it's not really much of a change, but, uh, you know. Well, uh, the number of deaths at this point is around 260,000 that are related to COVID-19 and have been reported as such. Um, So COVID-19 continues to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S. this year, behind only cancer and heart disease. Yeah, so that means it's even higher than, like, number of people getting in car accidents or having strokes or other diseases. Yeah, Uh, so that is... Murder. um, Murder, death, suicide. (laughs) Well, I don't know why we're laughing about this, but this is really depressing, guys. You know, uh, have to find the silver lining in things. I mean, the the I don't know where that is in this conversation. The nice the nice thing is, is the solution's really simple. You know, I mean, why it's funny is uh, so it's not funny, right? There's loss of life, tragic loss of life. But it's just like you know. I, I don't know how to fly to the moon, um, but I do know how to like mitigate the spread of COVID nineteen. Do you? You just thought your mask was out of it. My face is upside down. It's not that my mask is upside. Down. We figured that out, man. But you know, it's just your beard, Jason. It's just like wow. We can figure this stuff out. You know, look at how smart human beings are. Um, how are we doing locally, Mary, when it comes to COVID? We, we've learned that globally and nationally, not too good. Um, how are we doing locally? Yeah, well, just really quick, you didn't actually tell us how to mitigate the the spread of COVID-19, Jason. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, so yeah, I mean, um, I suggest, what I guess you're going to say is wear a mask and pay people to stay home. Oh, th- that's a really good, I like the second one. Um, I would say wear a mask, physically distant from other people. Try to stay, you know, outside of, indoor areas as much as possible um and also yeah like we could incentivize people to not to not have to be in close proximity to others by paying them to stay home so that we can tackle a pandemic that's taken more than 260,000 american lives in the past eight months uh, a disaster that is far worse than 9-11 on on every scale metric possible right a, a metric that is far worse than 20 years of ongoing american wars in the middle east a war is plural because there's been multiple wars so you know the number of troops who've died in the past 20 years uh it pales in comparison to the number of of covid 19 deaths in the past eight months and so we are living through a um a scar on america that is going to be cluck of trauma for years to come and uh, that that requires a collective national response Mm. Yeah, we didn't certainly didn't much. have that. I didn't remember that being much. very hopeful, actually, especially considering how divided our country has been right. over the past several years, but especially in the past four. I remember being really hopeful uh, in a, kind of a, you know, a sad way uh, to to hope that this would bring our nation together and that 
certainly didn't happen. Can, so anyway, actually, let's just... Uh, can I jump the gun real quick and oh, just sure. remind folks you're tuned into Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR. Our feature later in the hour is we're going to look at a report by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences called Our Common Purpose, Reinventing American Democracy for the 21st Century. It came out in June of this year. And I was going to read when I started that segment on a, an introductory letter by the president of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. It goes to your point, Mary, on how when COVID-19 was starting to come out, we thought this would be the thing that would break through polarized America and unite us against a common enemy. And you know, we were wrong. Very 1984 is this, where you just, you got to have a common enemy to bring everyone together. So this is a letter yeah. from the president of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences introducing this report. It says, quote, while it is impossible to predict today, again, written in June, how the COVID-19 epidemic will impact the fabric of the United States and the world. The work done by the Commission on the Practice of Democratic Citizenship does not allow, or sorry, excuse me, does allow one confident prediction. Americans will respond to the current challenge and its after effects with creative acts of generosity and innovative solutions born of the recognition that we are all in this together, end quote. Well, I think that maybe was true on a personal level, but certainly not on an administrative level. But I'm really glad that that ties in. Yeah, that ties in very well with this coverage. Didn't age well. But, you know, no, uh, somebody play the clip of Donald Trump saying the CDC is recommending that you can wear a mask. I don't know if that you actually have to do that. I think that's something you can do if you want to. I'm not going to wear one. <laughs> um, yeah. You know. As snarky as we and burnt out as we can be by the Trump administration, the outgoing lame duck Trump administration, uh, the vast majority of Americans, I think, still continue to um, see this pandemic as something serious. And indeed, uh, I think that the medical, the health community, healthcare community has been um, really phenomenal, you know, uh, in tackling this virus and seeing how healthcare workers have come together and how they've responded to this overall, I think, has been has been really quite astounding, heartfelt, warm and uh, they continue to plead on a daily basis for Americans to take this seriously because a huge problem with COVID-19 is its invisibilization and how we don't we don't see its effects because once you get COVID-19 serious enough, you go to the hospital where no one else is allowed in to see you. And so it's sort of like, you know, in this age of no pics, no did, you know, no vid, no did, <laughs> right, or whatever it is. Um, we sort of need to see it to believe it, unfortunately. I don't even know if that's enough for a lot of people, unfortunately. Yeah, well, that's true, Mary. But, you know, looking at it positively, I mean, the invisibilization of COVID-19 is very challenging because we don't see people who are suffering most severely from it when they're alone, quarantined in rooms, not being able to breathe. You know? And so it just sort of, uh, the healthcare workers see it, and that's why they plead with us, and we have to take them at their word. Yeah. Well, Jason, as you tried to do earlier, let's pull back to the local numbers and kind of leave it with that. Uh, as I think a lot of healthcare workers locally would also be asking the community to be careful, Monroe County's numbers have been rising over the past month, really. Um, and lately, our caseload has not looked very good. Up to date, so this is again from the beginning of the pandemic, there have been a, about 11,700 cases in Monroe County, and at this point, 313 of those cases have resulted in death. As of Friday, the new number of confirmed cases that day was 294, and the seven-day average has been around 260 cases in Monroe County a day over the past seven days. 
I think, what, in September we were looking at numbers in the teens, in the 20s, maybe not that low. Maybe they were in, in the 50s at that point. But these are much higher numbers than they have been. And, you know, there are a lot of things we could speculate about, whether it's because people aren't recognizing the symptoms because of the cold or whether people are getting fatigue or spending more time inside. Um, but with Thanksgiving coming up, uh, the community really needs to be careful and really be wary about who they're spending time with to make sure that they're staying in a pod that is actually a pod and, and not like a secret pod where everyone else is in many other pods. Mm. Um, because the numbers are high, are, are continuing to rise and we want to, you know, we want to make sure that Thanksgiving next year has all the family members present. Indeed. Yep. COVID-19. We were no, I said last week, we're no longer in the eye of the storm. We are definitely part of the storm. Uh, don't, I, I would argue not to pay too much attention to the positivity rate in that, oh, whether it's going down or up, you know, look at the total number of cases per day. The total number of cases per day continues to be around 300. Uh, you, you, if you look at the graph of the cases over time, a week, you know, weeks ago it was 250, weeks ago it was, it was 200, then 150, then 100. And then for such a long time when we were in the so-called eye of the storm, it was, Five, ten, fifteen—you know—an hour at three hundred a day. So, yeah, yeah COVID nineteen very bad locally. It's out there. There is community spread, and we can continue to take uh, easy to do steps. Hopefully, easy to do, you know, relatively easy to do, barring systemic barriers such as wearing a mask, physical distancing, and not being indoors for prolonged periods of time with other people, not in our pod. And so, with that. Let's take a short break and remind folks that you're tuned into Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. After the break, we'll cover who won local races in the 2020 general election. And then we'll get to our feature by looking at how American democracy can be reinvented to have a more egalitarian society such that our voices of all people, particularly those who've been shut out of the political process by forces of power and money, can be heard. Give us a call, 585-219-8889, 585-219-8889. We'll be right back. Hang on. Motorola Scalatron by Stereolab. And this is Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. So we did say we were going to go straight into the uh, local election results this week, but I did want to share real quick... Um, a quick COVID anecdote for this week. Did any of you guys hear about this? I did not, no. Tell us what it is, man. So there was a story that broke this week. Um, uh, a lawsuit filed against Tyson Food Incorporated, which is a meat processing company, which uh, they claim that they supply 20% of the U.S.'s total beef, pork, and uh, other meat products. And a... Uh, <laughs> This is like capitalism, the horror story. Um, they, at one of their uh, one of their uh, pork processing plants in Waterloo, Iowa, the managers have been accused of starting a betting pool to see how many of their workers contracted COVID nineteen. And this came out in a lawsuit that was filed, I think, two weeks or a week and a half ago. It was November eleventh that the lawsuit was filed. The defendants include a number of high-ranking officials, including President and CEO Dean Banks, CEO Noel White, 
President Stephen Stouffer and Chairman John Tyson, along with a number of other managers and supervisors who work at the Waterloo plant. And the 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 betting pool is just sort of like the the icing on top of this uh, poop cake. <laughs> that is uh, the um, the lawsuit was filed by a f- the family of an employee who contracted COVID-19 and later died the accusations listed in the lawsuit include supervisors being instructed to falsely deny the existence of positive cases in the plant the transferal of employees between plants who had tested positive without requiring them to quarantine not providing workers with a sufficient supply of PPE and also disregarding social distancing guidelines while they were working on the plant floor. And encouraging supervisors and workers to report to work even when exhibiting symptoms of COVID-19. And there's just like a ton of uh, horrible um, sort of quotations and instances from the the article that I read. Like there's there's one story about how an employee literally vomited on like the production line of this meat processing plant, and then was asked to stay and work and came back to work the next day and so on, and how the for weeks the uh, the managers of the plant resisted being shut down and it wasn't until April 22nd, 10 days after 24 employees were admitted to an emergency room, that they finally shut down, and so. Uh, a direct quote from the lawsuit, which I thought was worth sharing, is that at some point between March and mid-April, Defendant Tom Hart, he's one of the managers at the Waterloo plant, uh, Defendant Tom Hart, the plant manager of the Waterloo facility, organized a cash buy-in, winner-take-all betting pool for supervisors and managers to wager how many employees would test positive for COVID-19, which is just about the scummiest thing that I've read this week. Um... In a, in a statement, uh, in a statement um, uh, referencing this, President and CEO Dean Banks, who's also listed in this lawsuit, said, "We have suspended without pay the individuals allegedly involved in the gambling pool, and have retained the law firm Covington and, Bur- and Burling LLP to conduct an independent investigation led by former Attorney General Eric Holder." And he goes on to say that they've instituted a number of, you know, changes to their facility to ensure workers' safety, but. It just reads like a load of bollocks at this point, and um, especially when you consider uh, that NPR reported that court documents say that as early as March, high-level executives began lobbying White House officials, including President Trump and Vice President Pence, and other members of Congress for protection from COVID-19 mitigation efforts. They simultaneously lobbied Republican Governor Kim Reynolds and successfully got her to issue an executive order stating that only the state government not local governments had the authority to close businesses in northeast Iowa where the Waterloo facility is located. Well, I guess that shows how important it is to have good leadership in your community uh, that might be resistant to this kind of lobbying efforts. That is just horrifying. Um, but thank you for sharing that, Matt. And maybe we want to look into the new leadership in our community at this point. Indeed, another poignant example of big business in modern American society exploiting labor and how we need to have uh, human lives valued more than money. The heart of our show. Now let's look at the 2020 local general election results. 
on evidence of design on 100.9 FM WXIR. According to New York State law, absentee ballots could not be counted until January or November 16th. Not sure why. I, I wish I had more time to do research on that. Maybe if you know, give us a call, 585-219-8889. Again, 585-219-8889. Uh, the, everything I'm about to read is from a Rochester First news reporting of this week showing kind of the uh, the, the, the winners of the election. According to data released by the Monroe County Board of Elections, at least for the president in the 2020 general election um, here locally in Monroe County, absentee voting was three to one Democrat to Republican. So like we saw in national trends, locally more Democrats voted absentee than Republicans. Many reasons for this, one of which is the Republican Donald Trump tried to convince his supporters that absentee voting uh, was fraught with fraud, even though he supports no evidence to say that, and indeed that is a lie. And also Democrats tend to take COVID-19 more seriously than Republicans, and therefore didn't want to stand in line to vote. So that that could be one of the reasons, but you know, we see local trends near national ones or more Democrats locally voted via absentee. Let's look at some of the results from the election that we just went through, because Mary, you're totally right. Who holds power, even in local races that you might not know, really does matter folks so um, if you want to figure out i'm going to be reading a bunch of state assembly districts senate districts they're probably going to mean nothing to 99 percent of listeners here they don't mean anything to me unless you know what your (laughs) what your district is how do you figure out what state assembly or senate district you're in or even what um you know, federal uh, House of Representatives district you're in, one of the easiest ways to do that is to go to monroecounty.gov forward slash ETC forward slash voter. monroecounty.gov forward slash ETC forward slash voter. By going to that site, all you do is type in your last name, your date of birth, and your address, and it shows you who all of your elected representatives are in all levels of government, and also your district information. So what congressional, senate, assembly, legislative districts you are in. MonroeCounty.gov forward slash ETC forward slash voter. There's other ways to find that information out, but that's a place that I often go for local coverage. So for the House of Representatives, 23rd District, Tom Reed, the Republican, defeated Tracy Mitrand, the Democrat, 62 to 37. U.S. House of Representatives, 24th District. Republican John Katko defeated Democrat Dana Balter, 55% to 41%. U.S. House of Representatives, District 25. Democrat Joe Morelli defeated Republican George Mitris, 60% to 39%. Again, Joe Morelli is the the House of Representatives member for most residents of Monroe County that was formerly Louis Slaughter's seat. That's the U.S. House of Representatives, District 25. For the U.S. House of Representatives, District number 27, Republican Chris Jacobs defeated Democrat Nate McMurray 64% to 35%. That is like their third or fourth time going ahead to head. Oh God, District 27. That's an entire show in and of itself. New York State Senate, District 54. Republican Pam Helming defeated Democrat Shauna O'Toole, 68% to 32%. Well, uh, according to this document I'm looking at, not all votes are in, uh, but Pam Helming looks way ahead. Again, um, 
I'm taking 95 to 99% certainty that these results from this Rochester First article as of two days ago are correct after the absentee ballots, most of them were counted. New York State Senate District 55, Democrat Samra Brook defeated Republican Christopher Misick 54% to 46%. New York State Senate District 56, Democrat Jeremy Cooney defeated Republican Mike Berry nail-biter. It was, um, oh man, is this one correct? No, yeah, that one's 55% to 44%. New York State Senate District 57, Republican George Borello defeated a Democrat Frank Puglisi, 73% to 27%. New York State Senate District 59, Republican Patrick Gallivan defeated Democrat Jason Klimek, 71 to 29. New York State Senate District 61, Republican Edward Rath defeated Democrat Jacqueline Berger, 59 to 41. New York State Senate District 62, Republican Rob Ort, he was the only candidate. He he wins with 76% of the vote. He uh, Blank got 25%. So, uh, man, the non-votes almost beat him. No, just kidding. Rob or write-ins. <laughs> that yeah. happens more often than you would think, right? Yeah. People run unopposed. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, in, in city politics, there's essentially no Republicans who ever run, right? I mean... Um, the RCSD school board, it's always Democrats. It's, there's no Republicans on it. So, uh, you know, that, that happens quite often a lot. New York State Assembly, District 133, Republican Majorie Burns defeats Sharon Sattler LeBlanc, 66 to 34. New York State Assembly, District 134, Republican Josh Jensen defeats Democrat Carolyn Carroll, 64 to 32. New York State Assembly, District 135, Democrat Jen Lunsford, nail-biter, narrowly defeats Republican Mark Johns, 50-49. to 49. That was a big turnaround. Before absentees were uh, counted, Mark Johns led 55-45. to 45. After absentees, Jen Lunsford won by about 650 votes. Big deal. New York State Assembly 136, Sarah Clark wins with 87% of the vote because she was running against third parties. New York State Assembly 137. Damon Meeks wins with 100% of the votes. <laughs> That's a weird statistic. He's running unopposed himself. New York State Assembly District 138. Harry Bronson, Democrat, defeats Peter Vasquez, Republican, 65 to 35. So Harry Bronson continues to hold office. New York State Assembly 139. Stephen Hawley wins, running essentially unopposed against third parties. New York State Assembly District 130. Brian, Mantec- Brian Manctillo, Republican, defeats Scott Comeggies. I butchered those. Democrat, 72 to 28. New York State Assembly, District 147, David D. Pietro wins unopposed. Monroe County Legislature, we're not going to go on and on from here, just to highlight, but the Monroe County Clerk, Jamie Romeo, holds on to her seat, defeating Carla Boyce, Republican. There's a lot of other court positions, Maybe county court judges, <laughs> county court judges, uh, highway judges, town councils, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of other races to be cited. We will spare you from reading the list for right now. Check out 
who won local election results. Go ahead and Google it. Uh, local coverage, Rochester First, and others have covered the results. The Monroe County Board of Elections usually releases its certified results, uh, I don't know, month, two months, three months after the election in, in their political handbook, I believe. So you'll be able to see really in-depth reporting on all of the all the voting by precinct level, age, gender, demographic. It's really interesting stuff. Take a look. Local politics matters, folks. All politics matters. If you voted... Good on you. So, as a reminder, you're tuned into 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Man, that was a really lame way to end such an important segment. <laughs> I can't, I can't express enough how important it is. Everything that we just read through, you know, and just like listing off who won in districts, that is really important stuff. We are determining who gets power, and that will trickle down in so many ways. Who wins elections matters. Not just who wins, who runs in elections matters. Right, because we want quality candidates who are who have leadership <laughs> qualities, have morals, virtue, integrity, empathy, but also intelligence, capability. We want all of those things in our leaders. Who runs matters. Who wins matters. Who votes matters. Really important stuff. Really, really important stuff. Let's transition then and talk about how we can make this stuff that we're talking about more sustainable and better. Because American democracy, folks, is, I think most Americans would argue, regardless of what party you happen to fall into, in crisis. American democracy is in crisis. We examined a report by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences on evidence of design. came out this June. It's called Our Common Purpose, Reinventing American Democracy for the 21st Century. The American Academy of Arts and Sciences is kind of a group. They're a nonprofit of supposedly leading intellectuals and folks in their fields who get together to advance uh, America as well, arts and sciences. They put together working groups and teams and, and thinking groups to write reports about how our society could be better. This was a two-year project started in 2018 to examine how could American democracy improved. Again, the report came out this summer, and it lays out 31 recommendations how U.S. democracy could be improved. How do you think it can be improved? Let us know, 585-219-8889. So, Jason, you actually introduced this a little bit earlier when we were talking about COVID-19. And it's interesting to see how different that prediction has been from what we've actually, what we've actually experienced. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear more about what they were predicting and how that has panned out. Well, you know, there's not much prediction going into the support. I, the, the quote that I read earlier was by the president, and he's saying, well, you know, we're confident that America will fight through COVID-19 with its ingenuity and coming togetherness that it's shown in the past. You know, it's a presidential letter meant to say the same sort of cliche coming together statements that all presidential letters do. It reads like a lot of corporate bollocks. Right. And so the report itself, though, not doing much of prediction, the report says, what are the challenges to American democracy? According to the report, it includes things like globalization, centralized power, economic inequality, ding, ding, ding. deep demographic shifts, political polarization, pandemics, mm. climate change, radical disruption in the media and information environments. I would agree with many of those things, indeed all of them. We've talked about them before on our show, that America faces serious challenges 
in a 21st century. Challenge, some challenges that are new, like deep, deep disruption in our media and information environments thanks to information technology and social media. Some challenges are old, like um, you know, racial demographic shifts, racial uh, you know, um, racism, uh, political polarization. New challenges, though, climate change, right? So some new challenges, some old challenges. Are after laying out those challenges, the report argues that we need to do things to meet those challenges. And right now, our government is sclerotic, meaning it moves too slowly. And it's so polarized and antiquated in many ways that it simply is not arising to the occasion to meet these challenges. That sounds about right. Yeah. Sounds about right to me. Yeah. So now a lot of forecasting, they argue, what are some things we could do? What are some things that we could do? The report lays out 31 recommendations. They're broken down by six categories, like achieving a quality of voice in our political institutions, empowering voters in a lasting way, ensuring the responsiveness of political institutions, so on and so on. I want to read some of the 31 recommendations from this report. For example, to achieve a quality of voice and representation, the report argues that we must substantially enlarge the House of Representatives through federal legislation to make it and the Electoral College more representative of the nation's population. This, I think, is really important, and I'm glad it comes out as the very first uh, recommendation in the report. I don't think I would give it number one, but it's it's up there. So they write that, uh, you know, when the Constitution was signed back in the 1700s, the framers set the House representatives to be capped at uh, one representative per 30,000 constituents. Sounds like a lot, right? Uh, eh, that's a that's actually not that representative, I would think. But maybe they just wanted to make sure everyone would fit inside one building. I don't know. Building was there a reason smaller for that? in the 1700s? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's several reasons for that. That's interesting, Mary. Yeah. So you know, we can have a healthy debate about how many representatives shall exist per constituent. And and those debates should happen and will continue to happen. And I don't think there's a right answer, right? Politically, as a society, we need to get, get on the least bad option. The problem with the 1 to 30,000 vision by the framers is that nowadays it's completely blown up. Where now one House of Reps member represents over 747,000 constituents. So 1 to 747,000. So it's essentially 1 to 1 million, almost. One House of Reps member per million people. Uh, Interesting number, 747,000, that's about the population of Monroe County and Joe Morelli, 25th Congressional District, looks over Monroe County. So it's a great great thing to remember, right? It's convenient that it looks that way. So... um, you know, all of us in Monroe County are one House Reps member is Joe Marley. Uh, for those of you listening at home, 747,000 is much larger than 30,000. A lot larger. Magnitude's larger. <laughs> and so um, in 1929, Congress capped the number through legislation. Congress capped the number of, of members of the House of Reps to 435 members. So despite our population more than doubling since 1929, our House of Reps has stayed the same size, and therefore we have, we as Americans have effectively lost political representation. Yeah. And so the report argues that we should increase the size of the House of Reps. Now they caution: if we were to have 
If we were to adhere to this 1 per 30,000 rule. Exactly. If we were to adhere to the framers of the Constitution, 1 to 30,000, our House of Reps would be over 10,000 members large. (laughs) That'd be a big building. And so, you know, the report doesn't say a certain number to go to. It just says something needs to change with our House of Reps because we've lost political representation. And indeed, that transfers over to um, even the Electoral College, too, in terms of how uh, power through Electoral College is allocated. For example, Wyoming, the least populous state, your vote in Wyoming is worth like 3.5 times the vote of anyone in California in terms of how the Electoral College plays out, Mm. in terms of the number of electors awarded by Wyoming per California. And so it's sort of, the, you know, we're talking about math here in politics, but the way that the rules of our politics plays out, it leads to inequities. And so report number one, we need to increase representation to the House of Representatives. I think that's a pretty good argument. Yeah, it seems like it, it has changed from uh, what the original ideas were. Yeah. That um, Wyoming thing you just brought up, Jason, that sort of goes back into the idea of why... Republicans increasingly uh, rule or represent the will of a minority of the population, even as they s- still continue to claim a majority of positions in government. Yeah, I mean, Republican, the modern Republican Party is the party of minority rule. There's no way to argue against that. I'm not being partisan here. The Republican interests, if you look at the math, and I don't know how you get more objective than numbers, <laughs> as long as your formulas are right. I'm not talking about algorithms here. If you look at the math, Republicans hold power in places where they are minorities. You know, like if you look at the total number of votes, total number of population percentage-wise, Republicans are a minority party, yet they control most of the power. And they've done that because our political system is broken. And so reports like this argue we need to fix our political system. Well, why would Republicans want to fix those things? Newsflash, they don't. They won't. They're actively trying and fighting to not have them be changed. Indeed, Republicans or Democrats do some of the similar things too. It's that Democrats got the short end of the stick because Republicans have been so dominant over the past 50 years in American politics. So how do we enact some of these changes? Well, we got to organize, all of us. We're all responsible. And this is why it matters who runs for office. It matters who wins an office, no matter what office it is. It matters for you to be involved in politics, because otherwise, slowly, year after year after year, your power, your representation will be taken away until there is nothing left. And that's what's been going on with the Republican Party. So what are some other recommendations? For example, uh, this report by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences would love to introduce ranked choice voting. I think that's a really cool idea. If you haven't heard of ranked choice voting before, you should definitely look it up. It reads, it makes for some fascinating reading. Right now we have a winner take all system in American politics. Whoever wins the, well, in some races, plurality, meaning mm-hmm. as long as you get most of the votes cast. So it doesn't mean a majority of the votes. It doesn't mean 50% plus one. This means most of the votes cast. So you could get like 43% if the other candidates got, you know, 30% and then you win. 30. And right. then the And that's know. minority rule, right? right? That is minority rule per definition. And that happens in many places, minority rule in American politics in many places. Ranked choice voting would eliminate minority rule. I do believe that there are some states I want to say Maine yeah. that has already enacted ranked choice voting. So there it, there are actual examples that we can look to and uh, and see and practice with. Absolutely, yeah. Again, ranked choice voting, definitely look that up. Fascinating reading. It is in Maine since 2018, and so it's already been going on there. And, uh, you know, there are some pros and cons to it, but overall, seems like a pretty cool thing in my book. 
Another recommendation the American Academy of Arts and Sciences lays out to heal and restore and refine American democracy is to uh, have multi-member districts. This is really interesting. So right now we're very used to in America having one representative per district. So for example, uh, Joe Morelli represents all 750,000 residents of Monroe County in the United States House of Representatives. Uh, there are some models in the past uh, in America where you could have multiple members from a district. It doesn't mean they need to be from opposite parties. It just means, you know, it would increase the size of representation. It also could be potentially they're from different parties. But uh, effectively what it would allow you to do is to have not such a winner-take-all model where you get, you know, uh, 50% of people voted for Jen Lunsford, 49% votes for... Um, What's his name? The guy who ran uh, against Jen Lunsford. Mark, Mark Cuban. <laughs> no. Uh, I forgot his name. But, um, you, you know, and it leaves the sort of people feeling really beat out by it. And, that's, you know, winner-take-all politics is kind of how it works. And so um, multi-member districts is another interesting solution. We have multi-member presidents, like the consuls of ancient Rome. There you go. There's an option for that. And we'd get Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Ooh, exciting. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I think we'd have to change the two-party system in order to do that, because otherwise you'd just always have both candidates. Well, so, Mary, <laughs> we don't have the time to get into the intricacies of these things. So, so the three recommendations we've read so far, increase the size of the House of Reps, introduce ranked choice voting, introduce multi-member districts. You just mentioned, Mary, third parties. Third parties are a non-factor in American politics because of the three things I just read. Mm -hmm. Because that we don't have ranked choice voting. Because, uh, you know, our, there's, so, there's so few seats in American politics. Because it's a winner-take-all system. You would have a more diverse slew of candidates running if they had more opportunities to win and if they're increased in representation politically. And so third parties would become a factor, and that's really important. Because yeah. otherwise we get this really sclerotic and lame political system where it's like, oh, don't cast a vote for Bernie Sanders because you're taking away from Joe Biden, and we don't want Joe Biden to lose to Trump. You're doing, like, this internal algorithm to ensure that, like, you're, you're voting for the least bad option, which is really stupid because you should be voting for the person who you think would best serve society at large. And also we, we create this sort of path that we're on in which our political destiny is decided by the a, a death cult and a, right. a slightly less worse death cult. A, a politically correct death cult. <laughs> we're talking about the Republican Party's death cult and then the Democratic Party is uh, more politically correct but slightly less death cult. <laughs> yeah, that's essentially what you know politics becomes. It's like you just both parties, and, and Americans would agree with that. You know, Most Americans are unhappy with the way politics is going in, in the U.S. Uh, one more recommendation I want to really quickly jump on. We've only covered four out of 31. Mm -hmm. This one is so, so huge. This is a no-brainer. It's like COVID. Wear a mask and social distance. <laughs> this recommendation, make it so that redistricting happens by independent committees and commissions. Right now, redistricting happens by the politicians themselves. We are in 2020, a year where the U.S. Census was just done. Redistricting happens in the year 2020 every 10 years. This is so important, folks. We've talked in before how the how the 
conservative majority in the U.S. Supreme Court threw out the ability for the federal government to um, effectively fight gerrymandering. Let's bring that case back to the Supreme Court. Let's win it through a constitutional amendment. We need gerrymandering to happen by independent nonpartisan commissions as opposed to the politicians themselves. Because of gerrymandering, this is how you get people to say, well, my vote doesn't matter. Well, gerrymandering refers to the people in power, the, the actual political parties drawing the state lines, right? But yep. It's just redistricting if it's if it's uh, by an independent party. No, it's both. Yeah, it's both. It's it, both. Okay. It's both. Yep. So it's both. Redistricting is a form of redistricting is the politically correct term for gerrymandering. <laughs> All right. You know, gerrymandering is when redistricting goes partisan. Well, like you said, Jason, this seems like a no-brainer, but yeah. In fact. It's not the norm. Not the norm. Not the norm. And so how can we make all these changes? By organizing ourselves. I'm excited to fight for these things. I'm excited to fight for a better democratic society in the United States of America. I'm happy for an for actual democratic society. You know, no, there's a lot of good things happening in the United States. There's a lot of great organizing going on. And um, we have the power to change things. And we see that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Donald Trump lost the election. And he is trying his hardest to not care about anything else, as he's always done. And he lost the election. And I'm really disappointed about how Democrats didn't take up a lot of other seats. But I'm also disappointed in the Democratic Party at large. And so, good thing there's people locally, nationally, and globally who are on the right side of history by fighting for the right things in life. Like universal health care, universal basic income, housing as a human right, uh, increasing taxes on the wealthy expanding labor protections, fighting climate change. There are people doing that work. I'm excited to do that work too and to join them. And I, I think we all should as well. So, and we have the power to do that. Will it be easy? No. Are we going to win 100% of the time? No. Can we win? Heck yes. And we, we start by getting energized, involved, and joining in those causes. So for those who want to learn more about some of the recommendations laid out by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, their, 20, or their 2020 report on reinventing American democracy to make it work for in the 21st century, you can find that online at uh, the American Academy's website. Just go ahead and Google it. That's all i got to say. We're running out of time. I'm 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. This was Evidence of Design. Up next is the Esquire Hour. Folks, did you know that Evidence of Design was only on YouTube for a long time to find our past episodes? Now. Did you know that we were only on YouTube for two and a half years? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think like previously we were just on YouTube and now we're elsewhere as well. Now I can say the thing that all podcasts say. You can find Evidence of Design wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Music, Amazon, name a big te- big tech company, you can find our you can find evidence of design there. Subversive. How exciting is that, folks? How exciting is that to listen to our melodious voices talk about fighting economic inequality wherever you get your podcasts? You just have to be specific about your search because these businesses probably don't like us. No, you can. You, <laughs> it's easier to find evidence of design on things like Spotify than it is YouTube. YouTube yeah, I have found it on yeah. Spotify pretty easily. Yeah, so. YouTube, we're bamboozled. you got to be specific, but uh, that's all right. Anyways, Esquire Hour is up next. Stay tuned for them. Thanks for joining in to 100.9 FM WXIR, your local grassroots community radio station. I'm Jason Taylor. Join my good friends and co-hosts, Matt Treadwell. See you later. And Mary Lawrence. Just got to clean the board for the next show. Wear a mask. Have a great Thanksgiving. Be well. Be safe. Take care. And bye-bye.